copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Old Testament prophet Joel. Today, Joel chapter 2. We're going to read and study together the first 17 verses of Joel chapter 2. You find that on page 761 of our ESVs. Joel chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. What we're going to see today in Joel is an expansion of some things that Joel introduced uh, in chapter 1. In chapter 1, there was this invasion of locusts. And uh, according to Joel, uh, by the word of the Lord and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that invasion of locusts was pointing to something much greater. He introduces in verse 15 of chapter 1, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. And in chapter 2, we find an expansion of this idea. What is the day of the Lord? What will it be like when it comes? And what can we do about it? That's the message of Joel today, chapter 2. Reading and studying together verses 1 through 17. Before we read this word together, please join me in prayer. Let's pray. O Lord our God, as we, your people, come to your word, we come empty and needing to be filled. We come as the creation of old, formless and needing to be shaped. We come hungry and needing to be fed with the words of life. And so we pray by your Holy Spirit that you would shape us and fill us and feed us on the grace of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Help us to see him in these words. Help us to see the gospel of peace. And give us life according to his name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Joel chapter 2, beginning to read in verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through all the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. Like war horses, they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march, each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, 
with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord, your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? As far as the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. One of the hallmarks of a true prophetic ministry during the time of the prophets is the willingness of God's prophet to tell the people as it is and not as the people would like it to be. You see that throughout the prophets. You see that as, as the cornerstone of their ministry. Men like Joel, men like Isaiah, men like Obadiah and Habakkuk and all the rest, they were spokesmen for the Lord. And it is the primary job of a spokesman to take the message as they've received it and to deliver it faithfully. They may not soften the message. They may not manipulate it. They may not use it as a tool to get from the people something other than what God is looking for from them. And if you think about the way that many of the prophetic ministries of these men turned out, you can imagine just how unpopular their messages often were. King Ahab called Elijah the troubler of Israel. Jeremiah was imprisoned in the bottom of a muddy pit. Zechariah was struck down there in the temple in the courts of the Lord because of a plot by the king. All because they spoke as prophets. All because they spoke a word that most likely the people did not want to hear, and hear as we turn the corner in Joel chapter 2, that is exactly what we see this prophet doing. James Montgomery Boyce says that after all the difficulty and despair of chapter 1, we might expect Joel to have a few encouraging words for the people. Hang in there, he might say. Every cloud has a silver lining. Look up, things are going to change. Instead, things are going to get much, much worse before they can get any better. The day of despair in chapter 1 was pointing toward a day of darkness in chapter 2. The invasion of the locusts that he spoke about was pointing to a much greater destruction, to a calamity not only that would shake the foundations of their society, but would spell the end of all hope for those who were caught in it. It may not be a popular message, but that was the message that was needed. It was what the people needed to hear. Today, during our pastoral prayer, you heard uh, ruling elder Chris Campelli pray to our God, who is our great physician, and so it is true. 
you need to know that our great physician does not deal in spiritual malpractice. He is not willing to heal the wounds of his people lightly. He does not proclaim a message of peace, peace where there is no peace. He refuses to put a band-aid on things that must instead be amputated. That's why he sent the prophets to tell God's people as things really are, not as we might like them to be. The first thing that Joel has to tell the people is that they are headed, and history is headed for an unavoidable judgment. That's our first point, the unavoidable judgment of God. Verse 1, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, he says. Every city and town in the ancient world had their watchmen, they were the men who stood on the ramparts and on the walls, who looked out over on the horizon and stayed awake all night waiting to see some sign of danger, some invading force coming to ransack the city. It was their job, if they saw danger, to sound the alarm, to blow on the trumpet, to gather everybody and stir them to action. Perhaps they'll have time to gather arms. Maybe they can hide their children. Perhaps they'll escape to the hills and save their lives. They were the watchmen. And here in Joel, the Lord himself is serving as the watchman of his people. You notice that first-person language. Blow the trumpet on my holy mountain. The Lord is protecting his people. He's warning his people. He is leading them into all truth. And part of the truth that they need to see is this judgment that is coming against them. The day of the Lord is near. It's coming. Now we did see this idea of the day of the Lord in chapter 1, but now in chapter 2, Joel is beginning to fill in the details. He shows us a little bit more about the day of the Lord. He's showing us that this is the day that all Israel actually already knew about. He uses some language from elsewhere in the prophets. This was a recurrent theme and and the other prophets of God warning about this day. All Israel knew about it. It was the day of God's triumph over wickedness. It was the day that sin would be expunged from the people. It was the day that all of Uh, The wickedness and the violence and the forces of evil would be eliminated. It was the day that all the enemies of God and of his goodness would be cast down. And you see it all throughout the prophets. Isaiah said that the day of the Lord is a day that comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Amos warned that the complacent Israelites were really pretty foolish to look forward to that day, to anticipate it and to long for it because they thought that somehow the sinners outside of Israel would be swept away while they themselves would avoid what was coming on the day of the Lord. God's triumph over wickedness. And then with this language of darkness and cloud, Joel actually seems to be quoting Zephaniah and his description of the day. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 15, he says, A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry, because they have sinned against the Lord. That's what the day of the Lord is. It's the day of God's wrath against sin. 
It is the day that all of God's holiness against iniquity and against transgression will be meted out when all of his righteous anger will be poured out upon uh, the, the uh, iniquity of man. And Joel tells us that when this judgment comes, it is judgment that will be all-encompassing. It is like a darkness that can be felt. It's like a thick fog that you cannot see your way out of. When this judgment comes, it's going to come in a steady, unceasing progress that no one can stop. So verse 2 in the ESV tells us that like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Most of the other translations, I think, get it right. Rather than blackness, they use the word dawn. Seems out of place talking about darkness and cloud, but actually uh, in the Hebrew they're homonyms. They're separated by just a few vowel points. It's practically uh, the same letters, and, and that's probably what's going on here. Like dawn is spread upon the mountains, so also this great and powerful people. You've had the experience maybe uh, vacationing in the mountains or out west somewhere, and you're up before the sun in a valley with the mountains to your west. And as the sun rises in the east, the dawn kisses the tops of the mountains first, and then it begins its steady descent. And once it begins, nothing can stop it. And pretty soon the entire valley will be illuminated. There is this unceasing progress, like dawn, there is spread upon the mountains this mighty people that can't be avoided. Now when we begin to talk about this mighty people, this host, that's when we get into some of the weeds of interpretation. Uh, there's military language in this passage. The word army shows up several times. We read about uh, soldiers marching forward. We read about warriors not jostling but staying in their course. And because of all of this military language, some people have looked at this passage and said, well, what Joel is describing is a human invasion by a human army. Yeah, a, a cataclysmic Invasion, sure, something devastating, something uh, new, something different than what Israel had experienced before, but probably one of the enemies of, of the kingdom of Israel of old, maybe Babylon, maybe Assyria, somebody's coming, an actual physical human army. Others have seen this and said, well, actually, it's just another description of that locust invasion from chapter 1. It's just like locusts where we're told that they devour the land. They leave nothing but a desolate wasteland behind them. And isn't that uh, what Joel has told us already? Both of those uh, interpretations, I believe, fall short. Despite the similarities that we find with locusts or with armies, Joel tells us in verse 2 that their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. This is a unique calamity, unknown since the foundation of the world was laid, unseen by anyone else. This is a heavenly reality. This is a cataclysmic event. This is, as we may call it in New Testament language, Armageddon, the end of the world, the end of days. And when this judgment comes, it consumes everything. The rest of this first section, verses 3 to 11, we find that Joel is showing us the effect of this day of judgment in three distinct spheres of, uh, of the land, of the people, 
and of creation itself. You can see the division there in verse 3, 6, and 10, and it follows that repetition of telling us what is before this army as it advances. We see first in in verses 3 to 6 that there is a judgment coming that will devour the land and that nothing will be able to escape. Verse 3, fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. This is the end of culture and agriculture. This is the end of industry and farming. This is the end of fruitfulness. The land stripped and laid bare. In the ancient world, they didn't have uh, a concept of something like a steamroller, but they had chariots, and that was pretty close. And so when the battles were raging, especially on the plains, the chariots would rumble with this deafening noise, and everything in front of them was laid waste and stripped down and bowled over. It was all left empty and flat and broken. During Napoleon's invasion of Moscow, the Russians uh, pulled back into the interior of the country, and as they pulled back, they burned everything behind them, everything useful, every city, every store of food, every ammunition, everything that could be found that could be used by the Grand Armée. And so when Napoleon and his forces showed up in Russia and Moscow, there was nothing to eat. There was nothing to conquer. There was eventually nothing to do but go back to France and starve along the way. And as we read these verses about the desolation that's coming on the land, this is a complete scorched earth policy. You know, this the language of chariots and horses, of fire and flame and the the last line of verse 3 falls like a gavel. Nothing escapes them. So when the day of the Lord comes, there is a judgment that will consume the land and nothing will escape. When the day of the Lord comes, there is a judgment that will destroy the people. Verse 6, before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. And the rest of verses 6 to 9 describe for us this force of, of highly trained fighters. Again, this is, a, this is a heavenly reality. It's showing up for us in earthly language in the picture. But you can just trace the verbs and see how formidable this army of the Lord is. They, they are this people that charge and march and run and leap and climb. And they enter through the windows like a thief. In other words, nowhere is safe. There is no safety behind the walls of a city. There is no safety behind the doors of your home. Between the language of darkness and this steadily advancing army through the city and into the houses, it is almost reminiscent of what the Lord did in Egypt, isn't it? First the darkness and then the destroying angel, which apart from the, the blood of the lamb over the doorpost spread into every bedroom, into every household from the lowest slave to Pharaoh himself. And devastation was everywhere because there was nowhere safe from the destroying hand of the Lord. He says that they advance against the weapons and are not halted. 
There's no weapon that can stand against them, no weapon that can conquer God's army, and they conquer cities like a wave topples a sandcastle. There is judgment coming. And when it comes, it will devour the land, and it will destroy the people, and it will undo creation itself. Verse 10. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. It's hard to imagine the kind of darkness that Joel is describing for us. You've played hide-and-seek. You've hidden in a closet or, or under a blanket. You've turned out the lights in a dark room, but that is a darkness that's close, isn't it? Joel's describing a darkness that is expansive, not a closet that you can open the door and come out and come into the night. Not a, not a blanket that you can throw off, but a darkness that continues to go with no sun and no moon and no stars. Probably the closest we can get is if you've ever been on one of those guided tours into those caves out west. And they take you down into the recesses, and when everybody's settled and ready, uh, the park ranger shuts off the lights for just a few moments just to prove to you that you really can't even see the outline of your own hand in front of your face. Jesus calls this outer darkness. Absolute pitch black. And it pulls us back all the way to Genesis chapter 1 where we find that the very first thing that God creates by the word of his mouth is light itself. And he speaks it and he sees it, and he calls it good, but now there's no sun, there's no moon, there are no stars, there's no goodness. This is absolute judgment that could only come from the mouth of the Lord, and that's exactly what verse 11 tells us. Just as the creator of all the universes spoke them into existence, so also he is the one who declares his word, he utters his voice before his army. The same word that created also decreates on the day of God's judgment. And he who executes his word is powerful. His decree, his spoken word of judgment against evil and against sin will stand. We're told, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome and who can endure it? This is the picture that Joel gives us of the day of the Lord, there's a judgment coming. A cataclysmic end of days, an end of creation event. It comes on the land and nothing escapes. It destroys the people and nowhere is safe. It undoes creation and no one endures. And you need to remember, dear friend, that that day is still coming. The New Testament is clear that this day is still in the future. Paul calls it the day the Lord has fixed on which he will judge the world in righteousness. John describes it as that day that many people will, will wish that the mountains could fall on them, that the earth could open and swallow them up, because annihilation would be a better thing than to fall into the hands of God's righteous judgment. But the mountains will not fall, and the earth will not swallow them up, and instead God's judgment will come against all sin and iniquity. And Joel is pleading to convince us, if we're not convinced already, that the day of the Lord is coming. And the judgment of God is unavoidable. 
one of the greatest promises in Scripture comes in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What can we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Joel is teaching us the opposite. If God and his judgment is against you, no one escapes, and nowhere is safe, and no one endures. If God is against us, there is destruction coming that is unavoidable. And so the question is, if the Lord is coming in destruction against sin, where can sinners flee? Where do we go? If there's nowhere that's safe, where can we turn if there is no uh, solace for us, if there's no sanctuary where God and his powerful word cannot reach and decreate and bring us into judgment? If God in his holiness is coming to consume transgressors, where can we turn? And the answer is to turn to the Lord himself. The second reality that Joel wants us to see is that even in the face of unavoidable judgment, the Lord offers the undeserved grace of repentance. The undeserved grace of repentance. Verse 12, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Do not miss the significance of this verse. This is Joel's gospel moment. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, in Old Testament colors. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Paul says, but God, and through Joel the Lord says, yet even now. He says, return to me, and don't miss the significance of that Godward turn. Don't miss the implications that it is the God who commands judgment that also calls us to repentance. Don't miss the significance that it is the God who knows our sin better and more perfectly and far clearer than we could ever know our sin ourselves that tells us there is something that can be done. There is somewhere we can go. There is salvation to be found in turning to Him. We like to think that we understand our sin sometimes. We feel like we understand our sin when we've had to live under its consequences for a time. We feel like we understand our sin when we see what our sin has, has wrought in our lives, when we see it destroying relationships and, and turning us into a slave to those various passions and desires that the Scripture warns us about. And when we see that, we feel like we understand our sin. We feel like we understand our sin if we've been confessing it for years, for decades. We come week after week and we confess together and then we confess in private and we go home into our prayer closet and we pour out our sins to the Lord and we think we understand our sins because we've been wrestling with them. We think of our sin, though, as actions and, and thoughts even that original stain that merely bends us away from the Lord. That's all we need to deal with our sin. It's a little course correction, isn't it? 
turn the sails in another direction, maybe, maybe catch the wind in a better way. We think of our sin as merely an obstacle along the way. We think of our sin as unintended offenses from one person to another, maybe even unintended offenses from us to God Almighty. We think of our sin as failures and mistakes made along the way, but you know, in the end, we're trying pretty hard, aren't we? We think we know our sin, but the Lord knows our sin perfectly. The Lord sees our sin as it is and not as we might want it to be. The Lord sees our sin as an expression of deep-seated resentment of his lordship. The Lord knows that our sin is not a mistake, but it's a mutiny. Every lie that we think we can get away with. Every lust that we harbor in secret that nobody knows about. Every failure to love God and the people that he's put around us. All so many steps toward an insurrection. A desire to take him off of the throne and to live life according to our own standard of righteousness. To be where God can't touch us because we've lived up to our standard. And that's the only standard that matters. That's where our sin comes from. Exchanging the truth of God for a lie. We believe that our sin comes from a lack of understanding or from a lack of ability. The Lord knows that our sin comes from a, a heart that longs to take his place. But don't miss the significance. The same God who knows your sin far better than you could ever know your sin is the God who calls you to turn. And that means that when he calls you to turn, he's not asking you to deal with your sin by half measures. He's not giving you an offer that maybe, uh, maybe we can work together with this third party that you've offended and I can help you uh, like with the IRS. We can take your debt and we can lower it a little bit so that maybe you can pay it eventually. It's not a, a mediation between you and somebody else. The Lord says, come and, and deal with me. He says, reason with me. Though your sins are as scarlet, will they not be as white as snow? All of your sins, all the ones that you don't even realize you have, all the things that you've been stuffing so long, the Lord knows them and he sees them as they are and he says, turn to me with those sins. Don't go anywhere else. Don't think that there's safety to be found any other place, but turn to me, says the Lord. Return to me even now, he says. Even when? Even while the threat of judgment still stands. Even on the precipice of destruction, he's telling us that it's never too late. This is the word that we need to hear if we struggle with our sin, if we if we struggle with feeling like we have sins that God must not be able to forgive. He can forgive that person over there. He can deal with their sins, but not mine. I'm different. I'm special. There's no forgiveness for me. And God wants you to know that his hands are open. Yet even now, he says, return to me. This is a language that we need to hear when we struggle with our circumstances to wonder if maybe God is out to get us. There's nobody twisting God's arm to draw you to himself. He comes of his own initiative. Blow the trumpet in Zion, my holy hill. He says it again. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call the assembly, gather the elders, gather the children, every, everyone from oldest to youngest. Nobody is exempt. Come. 
It's an Isaiah 55 sort of passage. Come without money and buy without price. And the Lord is making the initiative. The Lord who knows your sin is calling. It's what we need to hear. Verse 12 speaks to us in shadows of Christ, doesn't it? Christ who came and laid down his life while we were yet sinners at the right time. And the Lord says, yet even now, return to me. But he says, return to me with your whole heart. That's what he demands. is, is not repentance halfway, not, not repentance as an outward show, not just one other hoop that you have to jump through. He doesn't even call you to repent because week after week you hear some pastor stand up behind a pulpit and rail about the judgment of God and all right, you've convinced me enough, finally we'll do the thing that I I think is expected of me. Half-hearted repentance will not suffice. He calls us to come aching for repentance. He calls us to come like Israel, brokenhearted, to see our sin and to hate our sin, to turn from it because of the danger that it brings upon us, but also because of the damage that it does to God's glory. And he says, return to me. To go back to our uh, medical analogy of uh, God, the great physician, this is an instance where the treatment is the first step to diagnosing the disease. If you go to the doctor for your yearly checkup and you have your blood work done, your doctor may come back to you and say, you've got a vitamin K deficiency. That's strange. It doesn't normally happen. There are some things that we need to do, but the first thing you need is vitamin K. We need to give you a supplement. There's going to be time later to to do testing. Maybe you've got ulcerative colitis. Maybe uh, you've got celiac. Maybe there's some other digestive thing that keeps you from from uh, digesting and assimilating the vitamins that you need, but nothing's going to get better until your body gets the thing that it's yearning for. Do you notice that the Lord says, return to me? Do you notice how strange it is that the prophet doesn't point out any of the sins that might be plaguing Israel at this time? That's what we normally see. The prophet shows up and he says, turn from your idolatry. The prophet shows up and he says, leave off your violence. The prophet shows up and he says, stop oppressing the weak and the poor in the land. Normally the prophet shows up and there is some turn away from this particular sin and to the Lord. There's none of that here. There's none of that so that we're not tempted to come and say, well, their sin is different from my sin, so the remedy must be different from my remedy. Return to me, says the Lord. There'll be time later. Once you get what you need, once you, once you have that, uh, that communion that we're lacking because of the separation of our sin, there's going to be time to search down all those rabbit trails of all of your, uh, your personal hang-ups and all the psychological factors and all the sinful reasons why this sin seems to grab you but not the person sitting next to you. There'll be time to do an exhaustive inventory of all the concrete ways that you have broken faith and fellowship with the Lord God Almighty. But he says, first of all, before you do anything else, return to me. That's what repentance is. Wherever you are in your sin, it's an about face, not just in the other direction, but in the direction of the Lord. And so the Lord says, return to me. It's what you need. It's what will show you what is wrong. He says, return to me with fasting and weeping and mourning and rend your hearts. I wonder when was the last time you wept over your sin? I can't remember the last time I wept over my sin. 
I bet you can't either. Some of you maybe. I would probably be a lot better off if I took time every once in a while and, and saw my sin as God sees my sin and was moved to tears over what it caused me and, and causes against the Lord and his glory. When was the last time you wept over your sin? There's no other way, he says. It's not just an outward show. He, he, he guards us against any sort of performative repentance. Rend your hearts, not your garments, he says, but come weeping. Come fasting, come mourning, come wholeheartedly. This is what the Lord says to us. Then in verse 13, the prophet takes up uh, the discourse in the third person. He's urging, he's giving incentives, he's calling us uh, to a reason to believe that we can turn to this God who knows our sin. And the reason that he gives us is the character of God. Verse 13, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Last week I pointed out that this is an echo of Exodus 34. On Mount Sinai, the people broke faith with their God, and the Lord descended and declared his name and his character to Moses, and it was an assurance of his willingness to forgive the people. And you can find this uh, passage all throughout the Old Testament, and it becomes uh, one of the most foundational formulas anywhere in the Old Testament to tell us who God is. He's the one who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, but that last line. Joel adds that one. Uh, that's not found in the formula anywhere else, well, mostly anywhere else in Scripture. He relents over disaster. The old translations say he repents. It's human language to understand what God is doing. He doesn't change his mind. He's not fickle. He doesn't intend one thing and then pursue another. It's simply meant to show us that as we turn to the Lord, he turns to us. When we approach him in repentance, he approaches us in forgiveness. It is uh, the feature of his character that makes him almost predictably merciful and welcoming of sinners, that he relents over disaster. In fact, it's the feature of God's character that makes him so predictable in welcoming sinners that it angered another prophet. The only other place that this shows up in the Old Testament, this exact wording is on the lips of Jonah sitting there sulking on a hillside under a castor oil plant, waiting and wanting to see some fireworks come upon those people that he knows deserve God's judgment, but not him, you know. And so he complains to the Lord, and he prayed and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is what happens every time, Jonah says. Here are these sinners and they deserve judgment and damnation and they turn to you and what do you do? You forgive them. You can hear his exasperation. And then Joel goes on to tell us that we ought to pray the same way the people of Nineveh prayed. Joel calls us to come not only with a full-hearted repentance, but with humble faith, hoping everything, expecting nothing. And the king of Nineveh said, who knows? And Joel says, come to the Lord, who's gracious and compassionate, relenting of disaster, and say, who knows? 
I don't want to presume, Lord. I, I know this is who you are. I, I come in faith, but I, I don't deserve it, and I know that, and so uh, I leave it humbly at your feet. Who knows whether the Lord will not turn, he says, and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. It's a subtle hint of the power that the Lord has to restore our fortunes and to turn our futures. Remember verse 3? It sets up this dynamic before them and behind them, before them and behind them, before them, fire, behind them, a flame, before them is Eden, behind them, a wilderness. And then we hear it two more times, before them, people are in anguish, the earthquakes before them, and it's unresolved, it's this tension that's waiting to find the other side of, of that pair, and then finally he comes back and says, who knows? You turn to the Lord, who knows whether or not he will leave a blessing behind him. Salvation where there ought to be judgment. Fellowship where there ought to be separation. Who knows, but the Lord himself will provide an offering of fellowship where the curse of judgment ought to be. And then finally, he gives us one last assurance. If we wonder, can judgment really be done away with so easily? He gives us another assurance in verse 17. He calls the priests. Verse 17, between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach. There are many things that we could say about uh, this last verse, but the time is getting on, and so the only thing you need to know is that these priests stand as mediators between a sinful God, uh, between a sinful people and their holy and righteous God. Excuse me. I think you know where I was going with that. These priests stand as mediators between a righteous God and his sinful people. Isn't it strange how overly specific Joel happens to be at this moment? The priests know what to do. Priests are mediators. That's what we expect of them. They, they represent uh, humanity in our prayers to the Lord. They represent God and his grace to humanity. They're meant to stand in between. Why didn't Joel just say, you know, you priests, go to the place and you do the thing you do and do it? He gives them the choreography. All right, you stand here. You stand between the altar and the vestibule. You stand behind the table of sacrifice and opening at the entrance to the holy place of God. You stand in the gap between this righteous God and his sinful people gathered in the congregation, out in the assembly, and you plead the merits of the covenant sacrifice. That's what he's telling them. It's a reminder that forgiveness is costly. In 1856, on his deathbed, Heinrich Heine said famously, of course God will forgive me. It's his job. Is that what we think, that we turn to the Lord and we simply say, well, forgive that one, and forgive that one. But is there something, is there someone, is there a priest and a sacrifice that has to stand in the gap? Is there some mention we find that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Is there some reminder that these things are costly and that God himself of his own initiative has come down and paid that cost and now says, return to me? If you've been around the church for a long time, this is a very simple passage. It speaks of judgment and it speaks of salvation. And there very well may be some in this room who have not taken those steps of turning to the Lord, of trusting in the covenant sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. 
If there are any, I urge you to trust in him. Young people who have not professed faith publicly, young people who have never uh, come to a realization, is this just what my parents are teaching me, or is this what I believe? Turn to the Lord and be saved. Trust in him. Plead the covenant sacrifice. Rejoice in the Lord who calls you to turn to himself. For the wrath, many of you that I know have been repenting and trusting and turning to the Lord for all your lives. Get used to this message. It's simple. You've heard it a hundred times from this pulpit, probably. You may hear it a hundred times more if the Lord tarries and if he preserves me and my ministry or the next man who will come after me, who knows? You've heard this before, but this is the message that we'll see for the rest of eternity. This message of, of blessing in the place of curse. This message of rejoicing in the Lord who draws a people to himself, who gives us righteousness where we deserve condemnation. We're going to come to the table in just a moment. We're going to see this message all over again. It is the dynamic that fuels our Christian life. Every moment, every aspect of everything we do, we stand as people who have been redeemed, who turn to the Lord, who feel our sin only so smallly in such a small way, in such a tiny way, we, we see our sin and yet we see our Savior only because of the grace of the Lord and so turn to him and rejoice in him and let's rejoice together at his table. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, we pray that you would give us wisdom, understanding, eyes to see the truth of Jesus Christ our Savior. Lord, we thank you for this covenant sacrifice the one who came down and lived a perfect life and fulfilled your word and your law perfectly and without flaw and gave himself for us. Lord, we pray that you would draw us to him in faith and rejoicing. Make us people who love you and serve you and know what it is to cry out and find life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.